Hello, I'm Kate Jabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. Can the British Army manage without tanks? This is one of the questions raised in media reports this week about the government's defence and security review. Lord Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff, says the government must find more money for defence. Does this country want to be taken seriously as a First Division military power? And if that's the case, then additional money has got to go into the defence budget. Otherwise, just stop the bumper sticker joke of being Global Britain. We have a special report on how German soldiers are using the British-run Senelaga training area to prepare for an Afghan mission next year. We ask what will be the impact of the recent coup in the West African state of Mali on plans to send 250 British troops there as part of a UN mission. Well, all the messaging at the moment is that uh, the commitments to the UN will continue. Uh, and this is where the politics of this is broader than about the Sahel. This is also about the United Nations and the UK as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. And the last surviving landing craft from D-Day, which went from the Normandy beaches to a Liverpool nightclub and is now saved for posterity. The government is calling for submissions to its Foreign Defence and Security Review. On Twitter, the Cabinet Office said this was a genuine chance for people to shape how the UK engages with the world. The review said submissions focusing on areas such as science, technology, data, cyber and space were particularly welcome. According to the Times, one idea already under consideration is the future mothballing of the army's tanks. The paper reports the idea is being discussed with NATO allies to allow greater spending on new defence areas, including cyber. Well, earlier I spoke to Lord Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff, and asked him for his response to the idea. If the thinking behind that is, well, we don't need tanks now, but we might need them later. So let's put them in a warehouse and mothball them. And when we want them, we can get them out again. That is just so incredibly naive. Anybody who knows anything about military matters know that tanks, armour, integrated with armoured infantry, artillery, engineers, aviation, aircraft, all those things come together to provide an armoured warfare capability. So to think that we could mothball our tanks and therefore mothball our armoured warfare capability is really, really naive and actually flies in the face of today's reality. Uh, we've been concerned about Russia for quite some time. Has Russia given up its armoured warfare capability? No, it hasn't. It's actually got a new generation tank. This is all about money and the Ministry of Defence's lack of money and the government's unwillingness to resort to defence properly. And yet previous defence reviews have seen tank numbers slashed from more than 500 to 227. The army must have been asked before whether you need tanks when you were chief of the general staff, for example. Well, you're right, of course. Um, I'm not saying that we need as many tanks as we needed, say, during the uh, Cold War period. But to have no tanks at all, and therefore no meaningful armoured warfare capability, that's a huge decision. And it takes a major capability out of the spectrum of capabilities uh, of the um, UK defence um, overall capability. I can remember at the time of the uh, defence review um, options for change, when the Treasury said to us, we don't know how many tanks you've got, but how many it is, it's too many. Well, that's a kind of naive set of thinking as well. So how many tanks does the British Army need? Well, I think we need sufficient to be able to put two brigades uh, into the field. So that's probably uh, ideally four regiments of tanks, let's say 50 or 60 tanks in each regiment. So we are talking around about the, the sort of number of tanks that we have at the present moment. Look, we've got to have meaningful 
hardware, meaningful defense capability to be able to be taken seriously in the world. The Americans won't take us seriously as an ally if we don't have an armored capability. The Russians will certainly not take us seriously if we don't have that kind of capability. And I think our NATO colleagues, and we put an awful lot of store by our membership of NATO, they'll think, well, the Brits have really lost it now, haven't they? And no money is tight, so much money has gone to de defray the effects of COVID-19. But if the government is going to take its responsibilities to the security and defence of this country seriously, it's got to put more money in defence, and it's certainly got to make sure that our armoured warfare capability, amongst other capabilities, is properly maintained. Recently, the head of the army, General Sir Mark Carlton-Smith, said the main threat is less missiles and tanks. It's the weaponization of those elements of globalisation that hitherto have made us prosperous and secure, such as mobility of goods, people, data, ideas. Do you agree with that? Well, of course he's right. But what he was not saying is we're going to give up missiles and tanks. But we've got to be very cognizant of the new threats and make sure we adjust towards that. Unfortunately, defence of the realm does not come cheaply. Uh, as threats migrate, as threats change, we have to counter those threats, and it always means that the bill gets larger. But it's a government of huge confidence and huge risk-taking if they're prepared to give up one of our major capabilities. The MOD said no decisions have been made regarding troop positioning, adding our commitment to NATO is unwavering. Aren't these reports, you know, just part and parcel of the kind of manoeuvring that goes on before a review? Well, you're always going to get stories coming out. We've had stories in the past, I mean, whether it's disbanding our amphibious capability, running down the Royal Marines, getting rid of attack helicopters, all this sort of thing uh, happens. I mean, there's also talk about only uh, buying half the number of F-35Bs that we're planning to buy. These stories come out, sometimes deliberately, sometimes not deliberately. It's a, it's a device to test the reaction. Well, the reaction to giving up our armoured warfare capability from myself and many others actually is one of extreme concern. And I would certainly uh, argue and caution the government not to take such a bold and wrong decision. And just on that speculation, uh, the report in The Times about uh, the numbers of aircraft, that Britain might buy only half its target of 138 F-35 Lightning jets. I mean, do you think that's something that's seriously being considered? Is it confirmation of what was perhaps already decided? Well, it probably is being considered. Now, I don't know what number is going to come out. They are very expensive. They're very capable. Um, they make our carrier strike program meaningful. It may well be that the program of aircraft acquisition has to be extended over a longer period of time. We buy the aircraft as we can afford to buy them and perhaps not buy them in the large tranches that we originally had hoped. There's got to be a sensible number of aircraft and it's probably quite close to the original figure. And just finally, um, if you were the head of the army at the moment and you were being asked where could cuts be made, what would you say? Well, I think I'm afraid I would turn it round. The army has taken a disproportionate amount of cuts over the last five, ten years. Um, when I was head of the army up to 2009, the strength of the army was over 100,000. The army is only around about 70-odd thousand at its recruited strength currently. So I believe that the army has taken its disproportionate share of cuts up to now. So I'd turn it round and actually say the argument is not where can we cut more, but actually does this country want to be taken seriously as a first division military power. And if that's the case, then additional money has got to go into the defence budget. Many of us have been arguing that for years. This government's got to get it and get on with it now, or otherwise 
just stop the bumper sticker joke of being global Britain. That was Lord Dannett there. Well, joining us now is Michael Evans, former defence editor at The Times and Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. Uh, Michael, in return for dropping its heavy armour, the UK is said to be offering the Alliance new contributions, including leadership on air attack. How would that go down with NATO allies? I think NATO will be worried about uh, the the possibility of, the, of Britain no longer having tanks. But we do, you know, we do have a lot of expertise in other areas. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, we, our contribution to NATO will, be, will remain strong. But I think, you know, Lord Dannett's obviously right. You have to make a decision about what sort of uh, future we are supposed to be supposed to play with in, with uh, security and, uh, and defence. And if you take away tanks, you take away a large capability. But the question is, what sort of capabilities do we actually want in the future? And as everyone knows, technology has moved so swiftly uh, that there are other capabilities that perhaps we should be spending our money on. So it's a very difficult balance to take. And Christopher, this is early days in the review where many ideas are being discussed. Some will come off and others won't. Well, that's true. But I think you have to go back to the beginning of the Security, Defence Development and Foreign Policy Review. The government laid out very clear its goal, uh, quoting here, its goal is to set the long-term strategic aims of our international policy and national security in national interests. In other words, you're going to have to say, what do we need the military for? Can the military safeguard it uh, with what it's got? And if it can't, what do we need? And I think that is the, is the crux of this whole thing. I've seen a paper, for example, which says, if you get rid of armoured division, what you're really contemplating is a completely revamp of what we use the army for. Where would you put tanks in a future conflict? Are we really imagining that we're going to, even with small units, going to go up against the Russian uh, tank force? Are we really going to take on Iran? Are we really going to take on anybody else in an armoured way? It's rethinking basic sort of basic things. We've come a long way since the old Mark IV tank in 1941. Maybe the time has come. It's not tanks that we should be interested in. It's things like how do you counter hypersonic missiles? Uh, Michael Evans, the Defence Secretary, said back in July that the review is not driven by financial pressures, but by threat. Uh, Well, of course he did. Um, And his predecessors have all said exactly the same, that it's nothing to do with treasury-driven review. I'm afraid it is true that that obviously there is a certain amount of money that can be spent on defence, and the Ministry of Defence knows that. Therefore, any review carried out by the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office has to look at what capabilities they can afford. I mean, you can't disassociate finance from uh, strategy. I'm afraid they're interlinked. What worries me perhaps more than anything is that when a review is carried out, people do ask ask a lot of sort of blue sky questions. And one of them is, hello, we've got a lot of tanks. We don't need tanks anymore. The Cold War's over, wasn't it? So that's the sort of thinking that is that is dangerous. And I think that's what possibly what Lord Dannon was referring to. Gentlemen, stay with us. Now, the US Vice President Mike Pence has warned violence will spread in American cities if Joe Biden wins the White House in November. In a speech to the Republican convention, he also credited Donald Trump with rebuilding America's military. This president signed the largest increase in our national defence since the days of Ronald Reagan and created the first new branch of our armed forces in 70 years, the United States Space Force. 
And he also praised President Trump's military decisions. Under this commander-in-chief, we've taken the fight to radical Islamic terrorists on our terms on their soil. Last year, American armed forces took the last inch of ISIS territory, crushed their caliphate, and took down their leader without one American casualty. Well, Michael Evans, you're also a former Pentagon correspondent for The Times. How would you assess President Trump's record on defence? I think on the whole, you know, it's it's pretty good. I mean, he, start, he started off uh, in 2017 with a huge increase in defence spending, uh, 10%. Uh, it has come down since then, but he realised that, uh, that the defence had come down a little bit in uh, people's priorities in the previous administration. Uh, he's very intent on bringing uh, American troops home and focusing on the two big rival powers that uh, now form part of the American national defence strategy, Russia and China. I think, you know, in that sense, he has driven the uh, American defence strategy forward and uh, that's probably a good thing. Obviously, there are other things that aren't so good, f- such as uh, taking a chunk of money from the Pentagon's budget and spending it on building a wall. But that's uh, another issue. Uh, Christopher, is it clear what his priority would be in defence if he is re-elected? I think more of the same. And you've got to remember, it's not simply a question of uh, hardware. It is a question of long-term strategy. And so if you take a decision and announce it in the way that he does, say, on, on trading with China, you create perhaps issues in, in Asia, in the Pacific, which you didn't have before. And when you see what the hardware the Americans are putting into, let's say, the South China Sea at the moment, and the threat that they, they recognize there or they claim to be there, is NATO still the front line of America? I'm not sure that President uh, Trump thinks so. The other thing to remember is that big defence decisions take a long time to go through. And so you have to look at the Pentagon and the people that run the Pentagon and see what is possible for you before you start saying that will also be President Trump's policy. Christopher Lee, stay with us. Michael Evans, thank you very much for your time today. This is Zitrap. British military exercises are expected to resume this autumn at the Army Senelaga Training Centre in Germany. All British manoeuvres at the site ended in March following the COVID-19 outbreak. But since May, several other countries, notably Germany, have taken advantage of the lull in British military training at Senelaga. The Bundeswehr has been using the facility to the maximum and even taken over part of a British barracks in preparation for an Afghan mission next year. From Senelaga, Rob Olver reports. Since COVID-19, warrior infantry fighting vehicles no longer roam the Senelaga ranges. But the silence hasn't lasted. The British training area now hosts a new big beast, and it belongs to the German army. The Puma is an advanced infantry fighting vehicle with an array of defences and armaments. On the Senelaga ranges, the armoured vehicles are being used for basic infantry training. The British absence has given German soldiers of 21st Panzer Brigade more range time. You can simulate some parts of the training. Captain Martin Waltermater is the brigade's official spokesperson. But nothing is better than use the tanks on the training area, on the ground, in the forest. Oh yeah. Coronavirus restrictions on British training have helped the Germans in other ways. 
The Bundeswehr is guaranteed at least 10 weeks a year at the Senelager Training Centre. Now the Germans are snapping up training slots originally given to the British Army. Some members of 21st Panzer Brigade will be in Afghanistan next year. Senelager's small arms moving target range is ideal for German close protection soldiers. They're based nearby, but Senelager is the only suitable range for 100 kilometres. This is a big advantage for us. Captain Frank Fischer is a close protection trainer. The smaller shooting ranges that are closer to all German barracks do not have these moving targets. Training in Senelager for Germany's next Afghan mission is intensifying. Sometimes it means going to Tin City, a place that few Germans have experienced. The urban facility is where decades ago British troops rehearsed for Northern Ireland. In a place that resembles parts of Belfast, German soldiers must imagine being in Kabul. The red phone boxes have been a source of amusement. I think it's funny, but it's collaboration between British and German. The basics are the same, and the basics we can train here. Range staff expect British soldiers to return to Senelaga in October. Major Jules Farrow says it's not only the Germans who filled the vacuum. And we've had Belgians, Dutch Army, Dutch Marines, the French. Although Covid is ongoing, we can't stop training. The Bundeswehr have taken advantage of other underused British Army facilities. To prepare for Afghanistan, they've been offered barracks accommodation. While coronavirus risks remain, it means that soldiers each have their own rooms. Even the local Nafi shop is now catering for German customers. We are very polite. Nafi shop manager Julie Woods. Very polite and very tidy. They also have some German products, like German beer, so I'm fine. What a difference a pandemic makes. Rob Olver reporting there. Now, what does the recent coup in the West, key West African state of Mali mean for the British military who are currently deployed there and for the others due to arrive later this year? Three RAF Chinooks are supporting the French counterinsurgency mission fighting militant groups and 250 British troops are training now to join a separate United Nations mission in Mali. The UK government has said it opposes the removal of Mali's elected government by force. Speaking in July before the coup, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Thomas Robinson, the commanding officer of Light Dragoons, who are due to go to Mali, spoke about their planned UN deployment. The UN mission is there to protect the people. What that means we're absolutely not there to do is fight an insurgency. The French have a mission, the separate mission, Barkane, which is all about combating terrorism in the region. That's not within our remit. We are not looking for a fight. Our role is really more about understanding how the violence is affecting the local population and what we can do to counter that, not trying to in some way go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy and getting in a scrap. What success looks like is speaking to all the various groups, the different ethnicities, the different villages, the different political factions, and understanding what it is that's driving disorder. And with that information, we are then able to queue up NGO responses to potentially come in and conduct projects which are going to improve the lives of people of Mali. Well, Dr Alex Vines is a director of the Africa programme at Chatham House and told me why Mali is strategically important. Well, Mali is a Sahelian country, so it borders uh, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. It's strategic for a, a couple of reasons. One is it, it is extended neighbourhood for the European Union. So it really does matter for southern European countries, Mediterranean ones, for a number of reasons, for transnational crime, for jihadism, 
for, for, for migration. Uh, it also matters, I think, it's strategic for the United Kingdom because it borders a number of countries that the UK has deep historical connections with. Uh, Ghana is one example of that, Nigeria is another. Uh, we have very large diasporas from both countries and important trade relationships. So it's a frontier area, both for Europe and particularly the EU, but also for countries that the UK cares about. And there has been unhappiness over corruption and growing insecurity in the country. There are two separate British military missions there, one to support the French fighting insurgents. How is that mission going? It started in 2012, 2013, and then it's, it's continued. The UK have committed three Chinooks uh, helicopters to support the French operation. It's not going particularly well. It did well to begin with, but it's degraded and deteriorated. It, it's a really tough operation, basically. So uh, I wouldn't say it's going well, but it is going as well as can be ex expected given the context of what's happening in, in the Sahelian area and particularly the politics of Mali. When you say it's a very tough mission, what are the particular characteristics of it? Well, you've got a, a, a number of different jihadist groups that are on the ascendancy. You have a hollowed out state, so the government is hollowed out and is increasingly seen as illegitimate, hence one of the reasons for, for, for a coup. And then, of course, there is the second operation that the United Kingdom is, uh, is going to become more involved with, which is the UN peacekeeping operation, which is uh, supporting the, the, the Malian government. Uh, and that one is also, I would say, probably the most dangerous UN peacekeeping operation in the world currently. That's 250 British troops who are due to go out to Mali. There, there's 250 British troops that are scheduled to, to deploy in December now. It was going to be earlier this year, but that deployment was delayed because of COVID. It's not to do with Malian politics. It was, it was COVID that's delayed that deployment. So the deployment's been uh, delayed by COVID. Is there any chance, I mean, the British government is now saying it's, it opposes the removal of the president, it's urging a civilian government as soon as possible. Is this going to impact on that deployment of 250 British troops? Well, all the messaging at the moment is that uh, the commitments to the UN will continue. Uh, and this is where the politics of this is broader than about the Sahel. This is also about the United Nations and the UK as a permanent member of the UN Security Council and that uh, in past years, the UK, even though it was a permanent member, had been a poor performer in terms of, of contributing UK troops for peacekeeping duty. Um, that has in recent years changed, and the Mali commitment is part of that logic. And what are the particular challenges for both the UK deployments in the light of this military coup? A prime challenge is that internationally, the, the coup plotters uh, are seen as illegitimate. So it is seen as a non-constitutional change, uh, unconstitutional change of government by, by our men. So therefore, um, their interlocutors are uh, an administration that is not internationally recognized. And that obviously adds complexity in terms of the diplomacy and in terms of the relationships that the deployment is going into. That was Dr Alex Vines. Well, Christopher Lee is still with us. And Christopher, there will be many governments, including those in ECOWAS, West Africa's regional group, hoping that a new civilian government will be elected very soon. It's very important to remember that this, this thing about Mali has been going on now for nearly a decade. France, because of historical reasons, moved in. The African Union moved in, then ECHO was the West African Regional Group, which is largely economic, they moved in. 
And then the United Nations group, 15,000 troops eventually, uh, set up to move in as well. That is the size of the problem. When you get all those different groups, you find an agreement out of that, especially when they think that whatever power you put into, uh, into Mali, it will be, as one described it, inept and made up of the southern elite. Now, it's a year today since teenager Harry Dunn was killed when his motorbike was in a collision with a car outside RF Crowton in Northamptonshire. Anne Sekoulis, the wife of an American intelligence official at the base, was charged with causing death by dangerous driving last December. But an extradition request submitted by the Home Office was rejected by US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Tim Cooper has been talking to Harry's parents, Charlotte and Tim. Harry Dunn was killed when his motorbike was in collision with a car apparently travelling on the wrong side of the road. It's believed the vehicle was being driven by the wife of a US diplomat, Anne Sekoulis. Despite telling Northamptonshire police she had no plans to leave the UK, Mrs Sekoulis claimed diplomatic immunity and returned to the States. A year on, I asked Harry's parents, Charlotte Charles and Tim Dunn, how they feel towards Mrs Sekoulis. We don't have enough reasons to hate a woman we've never met. No, and we don't know the full story, you know, so... We keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. We're disappointed that a human being would feel leaving would be acceptable. We struggle to come to terms. Come to terms of how anybody would think what they've after they've done that would be the right answer would be oh yeah let's get out of here you know. Um, so we certainly don't like it. Yeah. But if if Anskulis was to phone you up and, and say to you look I've been thinking and I've decided that what I have done. Leaving the country is wrong, I'm going to come back. What would you say to her? About time. Yeah, thank you. Please do, um, you know. We'd love that. Yeah. You know, we'd, we'd... It's never too late to reach out. It's never too late to say sorry. It's never too late, as she did on the side of the road that night, admit that she'd made a mistake. You know, it's never too late to... We're not a horrible family. We're a regular, run-of-the-mill few families. Progress has been made in their campaign. The legal loophole that allowed Mrs Sekoulis to claim diplomatic immunity has been closed. Now they're pushing for better road safety for foreign personnel operating in the UK. Should there be something as basic as a period of instruction for these people on how to drive? We're working on it. Yeah, it's we're... something else we have been working on, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We've, um, we've already had a meeting or two with Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary. Um, he's still wanting to meet with us again, and we are very much hoping that a full road safety review will be carried out. Northamptonshire Police have already said that they're going to work with the American... Um, personnel is, yeah. on RAF Crowton in particular well, to think, try and give... I think that's in place now as well. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think it is in play already, isn't yeah, it? I think it is, yeah. Um, just to help with, like, driving skills mm. and we're hoping that, you know, that may be rolled out across the country because, of course, we, we're not the only ones with an RAF base on our doorstep. And most of them are rural, aren't they? The RAF bases, you yeah. know, they are rural parts of the country and, as we've said before, you know, a lot of the Americans come from nice big wide roads and their driving is completely different to our style of driving. Yeah. So, um, you yeah, know, hopefully it'll be a, a, a thing that will be spread out and good will come from that. We'll continue to work on it. Did you think that you could be as strong as this, the pair of you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no one, I don't think, I think everyone thinks, you know, everyone's human. I think everyone, everyone thinks they would never be strong enough to do something like this. But you find it, you find that strength, you know, yeah. the amount of love that you have for your 
children. That was Charlotte Charles ending that report by Tim Cooper. Now, the last surviving landing craft from D-Day has finally reached its new home. Bad weather had scuppered past attempts to get the craft, the LCT-7074, to South Sea in Hampshire. It's had a somewhat unusual post-war life, ending up as a nightclub in Liverpool before being left to sink in the River Mersey. It's cost nearly £5 million and taken nearly six years to get to this stage. Nick Hewitt is from the National Museum of the Royal Navy. She's staggeringly important. These landing craft are what makes D-Day work. And until you see one and you stand on this one and then you realise there were 800 just like this, only then can you really understand the scale of D-Day. Nick Jennings was 18 years old when he helped storm the Normandy beaches. I'll be honest, I, can't, I was a little bit scared. It's only um, until something goes bang and you, you realise something like a shell has dropped on the sand that it, yeah, they weren't... Uh, they weren't doing that for fun. Well, the newly restored landing craft will open to the public in the autumn. Uh, Christopher, a little bit scared is an understatement, I bet. Um, she's had quite a journey, hasn't she? She has. You know, remember, there was a whole generation still that even if they don't remember the war, they were brought up with junk, war junk, around them. Eventually, somebody says, well, hang on, this is the last one. We want the people to see one aspect of the war, which many believe the most important aspect... It was getting the people that were needed to fight on, getting them onto the uh, the, the beaches, and it changed it changed the whole aspect of what we would do from that point onwards. Christopher, thank you. That's it from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.